Well, the reason why we've had such a long intro here is because we have two of some of the worst films that I've ever seen in the Firestarter. Yeah, yeah. We we have I like how you make it the Firestarter. Yeah. Drew Barrymore is the, the Firestarter. Fire That's the way you start a show. All right, let's get it going. Longest and worst cold open just ever. <laughs> Eight minutes of us just babbling on and on. Hello, 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 everyone. I'm Pedro, and welcome to Gritty Reboot. And I'm Meredith. How's it going out there? <laughs> uh, you heard the lady. Today we are going to be doing Firestarter. This is the adaptation of the classic King novel that is a classic, yet somehow it's no one's favorite Stephen King story. Yeah. So, as always, I want to get this thing started off by, before we started doing this episode, what was your knowledge of this movie, Firestarter, or the Stephen King property in itself? Well, I'm one of those people that has not been actually... Stephen King, I've never read any of his books. Mm-hmm. My mom has, but I've never read any of his books. My place with Stephen King is, I just, I didn't know much about this movie. I heard of like the Langoliers and Dead Zone and all that I had to watch with my mom. Yeah. But I didn't watch Firestarter until a little bit later. Well, I think that's one of the things growing up when we did, it was very difficult to not be aware of Stephen King because he was just kind of shoved down your throat and his name was just put on the top of movies, right? Yeah. You know, or or the big miniseries because that was the thing when we were kids in the 90s, ABC, like you talked about with the Langoliers. They would always deliver a big Stephen King miniseries. That was like like a seven-year tradition, mm-hmm. almost a decade worth of content. And it is impressive to think of like how much content King was able to really infiltrate at that time. And a lot of the movies really weren't fantastic. And before we get to talking about this version of Firestarter with uh, Drew Barrymore, I did want to talk a little bit about... The original novel that was written in 1980, it was a big hit because everything with the name Stephen King on at the time was a big hit. And it is generally regarded as the first time King really turned into his own cliches as an author because he's kind of repeating a lot of the themes from Carrie uh, with with this story of a young girl with, um, you know, psychic powers, in this case, pyrokinesis. And because of that, you see him kind of settle into a little bit more what the Kingisms, I guess. And so that's something that's sort of notable in the novel. Like I mentioned earlier, it's no one's favorite. You know, this is not considered to be creme de la creme, cream of the crop king, but it is from an era that people love King's stories. So it, it kind of gets lumped into a lot of greater work just by association of when it was written. I know that it's a shorter story. Like it's, It's not very long at all. And I also know that it was a limited release. Yeah, yeah. About 400 pages on on that one, actually, when it came out. For King, that is quite short. Most King stories are are pretty long. And I I will say is I've never actually had the pleasure of reading that book. I've read a lot of King, but I've just never got around to Firestarter because I'd heard the movie wasn't very good as a kid. So I I never checked it out. And I I didn't have the time, sadly, to read the book this, this week. Because even at 426 pages, that's a little bit of a lighter read, but that still just wasn't going to fit in my schedule this week. But I was able to get a great gist of it by, I listened to a podcast just about the book because I, I wanted to be familiar with it coming in when I knew I was going to have the time. So I, I do have a good frame of reference to compare both versions of this adaptation to what actually occurred in the book. So I think that's something I'm coming in with that I'm pretty happy about this week. So Well, cool. And so with that, we now... We'll talk about these two film adaptations. And by the way, right before we get started, I am very aware there is another Firestarter movie that is a sequel that was a kind of backdoor pilot on the Sci-Fi Channel starring Marguerite Moreau, maybe? I think that's her name. Uh, Who knows? But that is a sequel, not a a true reboot. And also, after watching these two movies, there was no way I was sitting through a dull TV movie. Just wasn't going to happen. Charlie McGee is a healthy eight-year-old girl. Normal in every way. Charlie, now watch what you're doing. But one. Did she do that? What are you gonna do with it? Probably bring her here. So you can do all your tests. And you give her to me. Charlie has the power. 
do something bad? Will you still love me? She can set things on fire. Something's happening in there. With just a glance. All right, in 1984, we have Louise Fletcher, Art Carney, Heather Locklear, Martin Sheen, George C. Scott, David Keith, and Drew Barrymore in Mark L. Lester's Firestarter. To be just like every other child. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, here we go. So, like I said earlier, I'd heard this wasn't great. And as a kid, I, I'd caught bits and pieces on cable. But I never, ever sat down to watch Firestarter. But I had seen the very end of the movie, the big set piece of of the film. So that was all I was really familiar with. So I went in pretty cold. And I was surprised by a couple of things when the movie started. One is that it gets moving pretty quickly. And two, David Keith is in the movie. I had no idea. I've always appreciated David Keith as a character actor. I've I've always liked his work and things like Daredevil and such. Is it because of Keith David? But it also is because of a running joke my friends and I have about, you know, him getting confused for Keith David and us not knowing which one he is. And we always had a reoccurring bit of of an agent accidentally calling up David Keith to play like an inner city gang member or, you know, a father to like an inner city gang member. You know, something that he wasn't wildly inappropriate to play or, or vice versa. You know, Keith David going to talk to his Irish sons or something like that. I've always enjoyed that, but I had no idea that in 1983, when this movie was produced, when this movie was shot, there was a moment for Keith David. And this was it. He had just come off of Officer and a Gentleman, which he got a Golden Globe nomination for, which I never knew anybody ever appreciated him enough to give him a Golden Globe nomination. Kind of cool. But this was his moment to be a leading man. Now, him being in the movie lets you know already that a bunch of people are just like, nah, I'll pass. So in order to get to him in his moment... A lot of things had to occur. And this is really as far as he would ever get as like a leading man in a Hollywood movie ever. And it was kind of a, a shame that it is this. He isn't great. Actually, acting is a real problem in this movie all around. Yeah. But I, I just was fascinated <laughs> that this was his shot. Like, you know, Drew Barrymore and David Keith met at this one moment and one fell down and the other one is Drew fucking Barrymore. Yeah. You can't go wrong there. That's true. Poor David Keith. Well, this movie starts, it starts already on a bad note with a flashback. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they chose to make this whole thing a flashback. So I want you to know this movie is actually a pretty close adaptation to what the novel is. And the novel has the same issue. They start running and this movie does too. They're immediately on the run. We have Andy pulling his daughter, Charlie, obviously played by Drew Barrymore. He's pulling her to try to get to a car to get out of there, to get into a taxi. And you're just thrown right into the chase instantly. And that's how the book goes. And they give you flashbacks. I think that sort of story format can work perfectly fine in a novel, especially the way King writes. There isn't a problem with that. In a movie, that all isn't really the best way yeah. to go. And that's the big problem. As a screenwriter, you have to adapt a book or a video game or a comic book into film. Uh, you know, a visual medium, you know, and there's certain things you just have to change a little bit about how a story is told to get the same idea across. And this makes the opening disjointed and it doesn't really help at all. And just a a really bad way to give you a lot of information because we even get the clunkiness early on of seeing David Keith and we hear like a clumsy voiceover of one of the, yeah, they're dug. Yeah. Of, of one of the, the farm agents and, or the shop, pardon me, not the farm, the shop, we hear one of his agents go, he can control you with his mind. Just so we, the audience, know that. when We're going to figure that out pretty yeah, quickly. It's not hard, to, yeah, yeah. not hard to portray that Yeah, in film. No, not at all. Jesus. Yeah, because we get, we get a scene of it before we get into the flashback. Why would they dub him? That was literally, well, that's just how producers feel. They say you have to repeat things over and over again to make sure every idiot in the audience understands it. So they dubbed these guys to give them dialogue that was a little bit explained a little bit more of the story in the first couple of minutes. So you're not as lost. So instead of like the intrigue of finding out about the world, we have this idiotic dubbing to kind of just give us a dump of information pretty quickly here mm-hmm. before we get into another lousy way to give us information, the flashback. And then we get the first instance of the the hair moving. A fan comes out of nowhere and moves Drew Barrymore's hair, which is how she has her, I guess, peak abilities. 
Yeah. So basically, anytime she is going to fire start, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, there is a wind machine that'll hit her in the face, <laughs> and it that's basically it. it. She does that. They throw a little orange <laughs> lighting on there to kind of show some heat that's coming across, and that's how the effect goes. And you know, there's there's a little controversy to this. Now, I'm unfamiliar about how it's actually written in King's work about how what she looks like or anything like that. I have really no idea. And the remake didn't necessarily change a lot about that either, but we'll talk about that later, obviously. But the way it was done, reportedly, was Stephen King's idea when he was on set, was to blow a little bit of air right in there to, yeah. to get that. Yeah, they said that I had some, read that. They said that's something that he had done, and I find that very interesting because... King notoriously hated this movie. This is one of his least favorite adaptations, despite it being incredibly faithful. And he noted that part in, in an interview he gave, I think, to Playboy, because Playboy was a reputable news source in the 80s. It wasn't like it is now. So you, you could certainly do that. And he, he gave them an interview where he said that was one of his least favorite things. And the director and other people on set confirmed that Stephen King was the one that had the idea of blowing wind in her face. Yeah, Mark L. Lester... He really doesn't know why Stephen King hated this movie because he approved the script. Yeah, yeah, he did write he on it. He was on set the whole time. Mm -hmm. They talked about everything. And King especially criticized the wind blowing, which is what you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. Drew Barrymore's hair, that was King's idea. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah, and he's softened on in recent years. He was on, King was on... Uh, Drew Barrymore's talk show, I think last year or maybe the year before that. And that was something that he'd completely changed his mind on because he, when he was talking to her, he talked about how much he appreciated her in this role and how he thought it looked cool when the hair was blowing back. So he flip-flopped on that one again. I, I think King just jumped on the train of hating and burying this movie back in the mid-80s like everybody else was. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and that's all I really wanted to mention about that is, you know, King got a lot of rough adaptations. And this is certainly one of them. But of all the things to criticize, it seems sort of weird. I think the one thing King obviously took away is he doesn't know a whole lot about filmmaking. You know? <laughs> so him being on set and him trying to write the scripts doesn't really help. Yeah. I read a story about Dino De Laurentiis. Yes. And that he Legendary producer. He, he basically got tired of King's shit on set. <laughs> yeah. And it was basically like, if you don't like things how the, the way they, they are then you go direct your own movie. And so he directed his own movie and it was shit. Yeah. And shit. You mean the greatest movie ever made? They all made fun of him, basically. <laughs> That's a maximum overdrive for the trivia fans. Yeah. A film that I love. And we can cover one day because they did reboot that. And one day we will. We just have to find out that they did a TV movie of that. So that'll be tough to find. So we have ourselves. So we're doing all the stuff in the movie, right? We're running through here. And I think it is to the movie's benefit that we're moving pretty quickly. Granted, there are flashbacks, and the flashbacks range from everything from, and this is where we introduced the Heather Locklear as Charlie's mother, mm -hmm. Vicky, where they fall in love via hallucinations. Yeah. And they're read she's reading his mind, which I, I like that scene because she's just like, oh, what a great compliment you just gave me. I didn't say anything, baby. You know, <laughs> like, oh, I just read your mind, you know, and I, why she was drawn to him. I have no idea because she was there's a line earlier that I loved where he's like, pardon me, Vicky says, when are we going to get paid? And Andy's smooth line is, hey, I'm broke, too, baby. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say baby. He goes, I'm broke, too. I'm like, the fuck kind of pickup line is that? Like, I have a feeling that's ripped out right out of King's book. But, you know, at least that's what's supposed to be there. Also, if she's reading his mind, thank God he was in a blissful spot, you know, and wasn't just like, like looking at her tits or anything like that, or just being like a dude and being generally gross. Yeah. Like just reading his mind going, oh, what's the matter with you? That doesn't go in there, you know, or just anything like that, you know. <laughs> to me, I, I think the movie has such cheese in these moments, like more than I was really thought was coming. And I thought it was going to be a cheesy flick. So let let that be a lesson to you. I mean, the movie really does hit you with that 80s cheese in these in these flashbacks. And that even extends to a little bit later on when, and not even much later on, when we, we finally get introduced to Charlie in the flashbacks and the training sequence where he's training her with a toast. Yeah. I like that one because 
we open up with him showing her how to use her powers, right? Yes. Doing that whole, you I know exactly this. what you're going to say. You have to burn, you know, just burn the bread, pull it back, and then she can't do it. And she wants to keep trying. The mom's like, no, 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 let's, let's call it for another day, and we'll, we'll pick it up later. And, of course, you know, Charlie, she's a seven, five-year-old girl. She gets upset. She starts yelling at her mom, and bam, she lights her oven mitts on fire. It's a big classic scene. She has to put him out in the water. And so no less than what? 15 seconds after he was applauding her for training, he goes and he chastised her a few seconds later with this. Charlie, you have got to control this thing because it's a bad thing. You understand me? A bad thing. Motherfucker, you know she can't control it. That was the whole point of why we opened the scene. (laughs) (laughs) It just drove drove me nuts. But that's just the kind of writing that's that's in this flick. I mean, maybe something like that could have worked better on the page. But Jesus Christ, it just clanks on the screen. What do you think about the score? A Tangerine Dream did the score. It has its own vibe and flavor. It's not quite for me, but I'm not a hater. I guess is how, how I put it. I didn't like it. Yeah, I, it wasn't quite for me, but there were a couple of times I was like, that's a nice groove, but I don't know if it fits this movie. But if you grew up with this and have nostalgia for it, I mean, it can only go to one thing. But maybe I need to listen to the soundtrack separately, which, which I did for the, uh, the remake. I didn't do it for this one. But... Really wasn't my jam or anything like that. Do you know who Tangerine Dream is? I know the name. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I know. I never even knew she, she or he existed. Yeah, I know. I know the name. So I, I was familiar with in some of the other work that they have, but that I mean, my familiarity is pretty low. One of the things that I found lacking in this movie was the dialogue. I thought the dialogue oh, at times would so? just be so bad. <laughs> Just so bad. A lot of things happen in a King book in people's minds, like a lot of interior dialogue and monologue. You know, people are going to talk to themselves a lot in a Stephen King book. They're going to talk to themselves and they're going to describe the breasts of female characters. These are the cliches you're going to find in Stephen King books. And so I can understand sometimes dialogue can be a little weak and people kind of jump to conclusions or characters just do things because we need that certain moment to happen in the story, right? Yep. I think one of the big moments is as they're running around doing all this stuff, trying to run away from, from the shop, they meet a kindly old man. That's Art Carney, who plays Irv Manders. And this is the nicest, most helpful motherfucker who has ever lived in the history of guys, right? Yeah. This is Homeboy Hall of Fame all the way. He gives them a ride and like he gives them food, right? When they get there. Yeah, he 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 basically is like, okay, well, I'll take you down the road, and then they get in the car, and he goes to, he ends up just driving onto his house. It's like, dude, I thought, you know, what if these people are crazy maniacs? What if he kidnapped that girl? You don't know what the dynamics are in this relationship. He has no concept of it at all. Yet he still brings them into his home, like yeah. you said, and like he just like shows his wife, hey, make make some for these guys. His wife's like. Who the fuck are these people? Because that's what I love. Uh, Louise Fletcher does a great job. She plays his wife, Norma. The look on her face is like, uh, Irv, have you lost your mind? Because, you know, she was like, I was about to make bologna sandwiches for you and I a couple minutes ago. And, you know, within a few minutes, the fucking FBI is on her front lawn. Yeah. <laughs> There's a fire massacre. But his jump to be the most helpful guy. Listen, I haven't read the, that part of the book he might just be written that way and it might work out perfectly. In the movie, it feels laughably forced. Yeah. I mean, to to a ridiculous degree. Because he's not only willing to do all this for these people. There's even a, a, a weird sequence where he asks Andy for, yeah, you want to have a beer? And Andy confesses to him all the things that are going on. And he just kind of like accepts it at face value. Like, yep, I guess that makes sense, right? You know, like, he he doesn't even like, well, maybe I should call the cops, try to save myself. He's not concerned about that at all. He is just the strangest character, and when the shop does eventually show up, he goes out there, and he's willing to confront him. I'd advise you to do what my daughter says. I mean, you know why she's wanted. Remember the soldier at the airport? You met a trespass. I want you to get the hell off my property. We're government agents, sir. These two folks are wanted for questioning, nothing more. I don't care if they're wanted for assassinating the president. 
Show me a warrant or get the hell off my land. Yeah. Weird. Willing to throw down with federal agents. If you'll just get in the car, we can discuss all this. Honest to gosh. There's nothing going on here except... We know what's going on. Please don't make me do anything. <laughs> so Andy uses her, I mean, uh, pardon me, Charlie uses her powers to, ends up destroying these guys, and it gets Herb shot. Like, like I said, he's completely willing to take on these federal agents just because he met these strangers a few hours ago and has nothing better to do. Maybe he's just been waiting for that time to throw down on federal agents. God, I don't know. It, it, it is such a weird, contradictory scene. Like, the whole movie contradicts itself. Yeah, really, it does. Ugh. So, the motive of the father, he's just trying to run from the shop, right? Yeah, he does it. That's as simple as that. There's yeah, pretty nothing much. else to it. Yeah, character motivation in the movie is pretty slim. Yeah, that's what I, another thing I noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. Character motivation for the father, like you just said, pretty simple. Charlie. What is Charlie? Just a daughter. Yeah, she is a plot device. Yeah. She's this thing that's eventually going to spew fire everywhere. And she doesn't really have much personality or flair or any kind of character to her, really. It, it's, it's a real shame. Like, as far as, like, king child characters go... There's nothing, considering she's no. the lead, nothing much to her. Danny Torrance is a better character, and Danny's barely a character at that, to be honest. Now, I've read The Shining. I mean, there's not a whole lot to him as well. And, you know, in this movie, for a chance to really flesh her out, it just doesn't really come come to pass, which is very strange, I think. Because I was going to ask you, what do you think of everybody at the shop? Our main character's there. There's nothing to him. Yeah, I think we have... Martin Sheen, he, first of all, these guys are introduced way too late. Cause I think we're like 30 minutes into the movie somewhere in the middle of all this yeah. stuff happening of them running. We finally get introduced to these people and Martin Sheen is fine. There's nothing wrong with his performance or anything like that. The character's a little weird, but Hey, so is everybody in the movie. The big problem <laughs> is uh, George C. Scott. Obviously George C. Scott shows up as John C. Uh, <laughs> John C. Riley, starring <laughs> George C. Scott is John C. Rayburn. <laughs> so, John Rayburn is Native American, as he was written in the book. Yes, that's who he's supposed to be. Obviously, George C. Scott is a white man. Yes, and so how do they accomplish this? They do this by giving him a ponytail, long hair, mm -hmm. and they give him a jacket that looks like. It fell out of the wardrobe of Steven Seagal's On Deadly Ground. Yeah. It's like this long leather jacket with Native American kind of designs on it. Just, just so he can pull this off. When in reality, they just could have changed him from being Native American. That would have been a lot smoother than, than what they really did. And then at some point he in the movie, he wears a fucking eye patch. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does wear an eye patch. In in the book, the character was disfigured and had to wear an eye patch. He got burned or something in Vietnam, or I don't know. But he was he was burned, so he had a, a dead eye that was covered. But well, there's actually a reason why he had an eye patch. A practical reason why oh, yeah? he had an eye patch. He had an eye patch over his left eye during the final half hour of the film, which was fucking crazy when I first saw it. But once I read this fact, I was like, okay. It was due to an infection caused by a contact lens used earlier in the film. Oh, so it's like a, a Dina De, uh, uh, De Laurentiis, like shitty production is what almost cost George C. Scott an eye yeah. on this whole thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because at one point, he just kind of stops and puts the eye patch on, on screen, and doesn't say anything about it. No. And nobody ever questions it or like, why are you wearing one now? I mean, he always had like the contact in there. But then he just chose to go eye patch because whatever god awful procedure they had for taking the contact out, I guess they just got and tossed it in the sink at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, who knows? And just, and just ran a little water on the next day before they put it back in George C. Scott's eye. Ugh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he got that horrible infection from that. So it lets you know. But so this character, people, Stephen King fans, like the way the character is written, they think he's one of King's more compelling antagonists, especially early in his career. 
But he is a little problematic, and these things are pushed almost to the extreme in this faithful adaptation. Because there's no other way to kind of put it. He is creepy as fuck, and not in a scary bad guy kind of way. Yeah. In a child molester who is lusting for Charlie. Yeah. Is really how this comes out. Now, does it come out like that in the book? I don't really believe so. I, I think this was just the way George C. Scott happened to play the part. I don't think he has any obsession with it, but in in the movie, like I think the way they portrayed some of the lines and some of the dialogue, I think really leans into that probably harder than they may have anticipated. Like there's a sequence earlier on when he talks about when everything's through and everything's done, I want the girl to myself. And which is why? Yeah, it's like why? He's like, you know, she'll be dead. I still want her for disposal. Like, the shop sends him in. Yeah. Out of all the people that they have working there, mm-hmm. they couldn't have sent somebody, one, younger, and two, not creepy? So this is the, the whole plan, basically, is after they escape Art Carney and do all that, Rainbird chases them down, and George C. Scott climbs this tree in the most old man way possible, right? He just kind of puts a, a loop, a, a leather a strap around one side and just lifts himself up to kind of trank these two out. And it is a really long sequence of him climbing (laughs) for some reason. I don't know why they chose to do it because there is a little bit. Well, I mean, George C. Scott is a little more tan than normal, right? Yeah. It's a little bit of brown face. Oh yeah. It's a little bit of brown face. So there is a little bit of like native American mysticism in the character that they didn't choose to dump and that's in the book too so some of that's there in like how georgie scott portrays and does things but yeah so he climbs the tree like that and he ends up taking them out and they're both captured and charlie never sees his face so they come up with this plan that he will get close to charlie by pretending to be a lowly janitor and slowly gain her trust and if you think this sounds like the dumbest fucking plan in the in the world, it is. And I want you to know that's true to the book. Well, what I what I like is in the movie, like he's in there cleaning, right? Like he's coming like every day, every day, to the point where Drew Barrymore's or Charlie says something about it. Yeah, I actually like that they pointed that out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Fucking <laughs> dumbest thing ever. Yeah, he's putting a lot of work in to just work an eight year old. Basically, to like fool this eight year old girl for this subterfuge. And basically, the. Even though she is the cleanest eight year old. Yeah, she really is. She's very, very tidy. That film crew did not do a great job dirtying up that place. Yeah. So. Toys around. I do know that the video game Charlie plays in her room is is, uh, Slither from 1982. Yeah, I I was a little stoked to see the old ColecoVision. I I didn't know the game, though. I'm glad you know that Slither. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm very unfamiliar with the old ColecoVision uh, collection, but I do love the bleeps and the bloops. So the whole plan consists of, well, the whole thing rests on this one thing, is that the power goes out at some point, whether the shop did it or he did, we're not real certain, right? Right. But it doesn't really matter. And he acts scared in front of Charlie, so Charlie will identify with him. Yeah, he's scared of the dark. Yeah, and... In the book, it's written he plays it in a childlike way. And so George C. Scott does it in a childlike way. And this does not help the creepy pedo undertones of almost everything that is occurring yeah. with his interactions. And like, my God, did did Scott have to caress her knee so much in this movie? There's just so much touching of her. I'm just like, no, bad. <laughs> Bad touch. <laughs> like all of it's really uncomfortable. And like it just, and it just keeps going, you know, you're going to, you got to confide in me. Tell me what's going on, Charlie. And like, I, I have no idea why an eight year old girl will be like, yep, this is, this is my guy. Yeah. I mean, I know she has no other friends, but sometimes you just look at somebody and be like, nah, man, I'll just hang out by myself. Then he puts the eye patch on. And Which it, makes him look ever, ever warmer. That's not going to help. <laughs> uh yeah, he acts real weird. He's, he is, uh, he's a pedophile. That's what he is. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the Fed's motive is? The shop? Yeah, the shop. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, now that you mentioned it, I'm like, well, I assume it's kind of control, maybe to turn people into weapons. 
Yeah, maybe so. Cause like they're doing research, right. And they're, they're having Charlie light all these things on fire, which is a real humorous made me laugh is after one of the tests where Charlie lights something on fire, Martin Sheen's just over the moon. He's a lady. Yeah, that's, like, oh my God, that's a funny scene. It's amazing. All the stuff that works great. You, that's all the proof you need. You can take that Supreme Court. I'm like, what can you take to the Supreme Court? And why? <laughs> yeah, what are you? What are we talking about here? It's such a such a strange. <laughs> I don't really know exactly what they want to do. I, I'm thinking they want to weaponize Charlie, but who the fuck knows? Honestly, what do you think about the end of this movie? It's the iconic scene, I guess. I guess you could say iconic. I don't even know why I said that. Well, if you like fire stunts, then you're yeah, going to be really I, happy I, with this I final do. 25 minutes. So I will say this. One thing I do want to mention, a couple Stephen King bits before we move on to the finale. One is that Charlie's powers, Charlie had the power of both parents in the book. Her powers were unable to work on people of different races. <laughs> oh, guys, I wish you could see the look that Meredith just gave me. But yeah, there's there's moments of the book where like she can't control like Asian people. She can't read their minds and stuff like that. And because Rainbird is Native American, she can't see into his mind. So the movie just never covers that. So they don't have to bring that fact up, which which is really smart. But I just wanted to mention that that's sort of in the book. So if you wonder why people have a hard time or nobody ever tries to control Rainbird until the very end, that's why. Because apparently mental powers just don't work well on people outside of your race. And Stephen King just kind of leaves it. That doesn't go that far into it, but it's there. It's just wow. a weird thing that he did. That's crazy. Cocaine's a hell of a drug, guys. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. This is during a coked up period of Stephen King. So anyway, another thing here to mention is that Andy is the first time somebody has powers and it's portrayed kind of like a drug addiction. Like it's killing them to do it and stuff like that. That's the first time King ever used that Makes him metaphor. bleed his own blood. Yeah. It's the first time King ever does something like that that kind of openly talks about his drug addiction and alcoholism. So that's kind of there as well. So anyway, they have been drugging Andy and he can't use his powers properly. So this invites Captain Hollister, uh, Martin Sheen, to basically underestimate him. And when he does that, Andy had stopped taking his pills. He's able to get control of his mind and he makes Martin Sheen his little puppet. And so he goes and he's able to give Charlie a note. And Charlie immediately tells her best friend, Uncle John, (laughs) and tells him about everything about their escape plan. And George C. I'm sorry, Rainbird steps in and his whole plan of setting these two up and not getting burned by a girl who can start fires with her mind is because she loves horses and they're in a stable surrounded by hay and like probably wet, oily rags. Like he is in the worst spot to fight someone who has firepowers. Unless he was inside a gasoline factory, I don't know what other place would be worse for him to try to fight a fire starter. <laughs> yeah. He didn't even try to like coat himself in water to give himself a moment or anything like that. The whole finale it, it consists of that. And it's a bit of a mess. A- Andy eventually controls Hollister to try to take the shot at um, at Rain-, Rain Rainbird. Rainbird. I always want to say Rain Cloud. <laughs> I want to say Rain Cloud. I'm so sorry. Rainbird. He takes a shot at Rainbird. He doesn't get him. Rainbird hits Martin Sheen between the fucking eyes and kills him. And then he gets mind controlled by Andy to dive down and break his leg. Andy doesn't say, hey, shoot yourself. Randy doesn't say, hey, forget how to breathe. Randy's like, just jump. And so he breaks his leg and he shoots him in the neck. And now that he is dying, this is when the fire starter is unleashed. Mm -hmm. He's like, burn it all. And that is exactly what Charlie does. Daddy, Daddy, you're bleeding. Charlie. Daddy. Look at me. Charlie, look at me. He wants to see your eyes as he kills her. That's it. He's so weird. So I can see your eyes. Yeah, I'll see you later. Maybe he thinks that the powers will like transfer. He does transfer to him. He absolutely does through the eyes. He does. Here's my favorite creepy part coming up in a minute. She's setting him on fire now. 
screaming I love you as he's a flaming fireball flying towards the wall. God, this is so fucking creepy at times, guys. George C. Scott did all kinds of bad in this. But yeah, that initiates this gigantic sequence of her lighting shop agents on fire. Yeah. Each one of them trying to use useless bullets against her. How do you feel about this whole thing? I like it. I like the the scene with all the fire, but I like fire, so. You do like fire. That is very true. My critique is, I think once you've seen like five stuntmen rolling around in flames, you've kind of seen enough, you know. And and the effect it goes on a little long. I mean, it, it does it's go nice. On a long. It is big. It is epic. There is a lot of moving parts to it. it. Doesn't always make sense in the action. Like guys keep coming up to shoot her when that's clearly ineffective. But hey, it's whatever. It gives us a big set piece to really end the movie on, and it's nice. And after that, we end with uh, an ending is laughable today because basically the New York Times is her savior, right? I mean that that's all it is. She she basically now that she has no father. She goes back to Irv, yeah. who has taken her to New York, and they walk in what has got to be the most fake location I've ever seen for the New York Times. And they walk in there, and, and she's going to tell the story, and the New York Times will save the world because this was written post-Watergate. Yeah, all that shit. But yeah, I, liked all the, I liked all the stunts with the fire. Yeah. The fireballs and anything really to do with fire was done totally practically because they didn't have CG back then. So Yeah. Um. It was the hardest movie the director has ever done. And he did Commando, which is another big action movie with another a lot of effects, but not a lot of fire effects. Nobody really gets lit on fire in that film. But th- there is a lot of uh, effects work in, in that movie. So very difficult sequence. You know, working with fire is always dangerous. Uh, your fire stunt still probably remains Friday the 13th Part 7, right? Yes. Yeah, Kane Hodder. Yes. That's a hell of a fire stunt. Badass scene. Yeah. Oh, it gives me goosebumps every time. <laughs> I kept thinking of that while we were watching this one. I was like, oh yeah, that reminds me so much of that, yeah. that, that, that sequence there. It's just so many guys on fire. Here we go. What else you got to say about Firestarter before we wrap it up? Just that the film was originally going to be directed by John Carpenter and Bill Lancaster, but Universal Executives basically turned him down because the thing, the thing, flopped. Yeah, the yeah. thing flopped so hard. Yeah, they they wanted him bad for it, and the second they saw the returns and the reviews on the thing, it didn't happen. Thing was a massive bomb, and critics hated it. This was Heather Locklear's film debut. When she when she showed up in the movie, I just assumed it was like someone who just looked a lot like Heather Locklear. <laughs> so I was just like, "Wow, man, she does look a lot like her." I guess, and it wasn't until I was doing the research, I'm like, "Oh shit, it was." I guess I hadn't seen Heather Locklear that young. And my knowledge of her is like Melrose Place, and that's about it, really. I, I, I don't have the, the T.J. Hooker nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> Watching T.J. Hooker with a prostitute. Okay, so that movie was almost like Citizen Kane compared to this movie that we're about to get into. <sighs> yeah. Daddy. What's going on, sweetie? Something feels weird. Something's changing. You remember the tools we taught you, right? Pencil, desk, paper, shoes, your wheel. Everything okay, Charlie? It happened again. What happened? The bad thing. Uh, what do you do? Not all reboots are for the better. She's not a robot, Annie. We have Michael Gray Eyes, Kurtwood Smith, Gloria Rubin, Sidney Lemon, Zach Efron, and Ryan Kira Armstrong in. Firestarter 2022. Boo. Okay, so we spent a lot of time talking about the first movie because I think there was really a lot to break down into that. Yeah, I agree. And even, you know, just for us to have some fun, which, I mean, we really did. You know, I mean, we've been doing, you know, you gotta, you gotta help me, Charlie. You know, we've been doing those voices at each other for, for a little bit. But this movie... Just stinks of that cheap cash grab. Like Universal just looked in the vault when it was a big hit. And they were like, what King thing do we have that we can turn into a reboot? And eventually this bounced around to Blumhouse until they were able to push it toward the end zone and get this thing made on a pretty, you know, low budget for, for what it is. And it feels that way. Yeah. If the last movie started negatively with a flashback, this movie starts even worse because it's a fucking dream. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's like it's like they watched that original film and said, How can we go under the bar? Yeah. I mean, it's almost impressive if you honestly think about it. But yeah, it does start with that. We get a nice idea, which is like baby Charlie lighting fires, you know, just when she cries and things like that. But you know, it's like I said, it, it's not even a real flashback. She does appear to have the same powers, though, from the, f- the first movie. She does. This is a little bit more accurate to the book. Is she does uh, have some of her father's ability and her mother's yeah. ability as as we move on. She did have that in the book as well. So that that that's a little truer here. And also, I think one of the bigger changes is as we're pretty much given the same story up until they're captured by the shop. Pretty much, the difference here is the story is told chronologically. So we get introduced to the mother a little bit, and she's a little bit more of a character here than the five minutes, than the barely three minutes of screen time Heather Locklear has. That's a nicer thing. I will say that that is something going to the movie's benefit. She, and she has a little conflict with the father because she does want her daughter to have some knowledge of how to use her powers. And Andy in this version, played by Zac Efron, does not want her to really use her powers. He just like suppress, suppress, suppress. Even though he is using his powers to make some money on the side. Yeah, and in the past movie, when he used his powers, it was, he would bleed out of his nose. In this movie, he bleeds out of his eyes. Yeah, he's straight up having like a fucking hemorrhage. Yeah. And bleeds from like mouth, nose, and eyes eventually if he does it for long enough. We introduced this by him telling the woman how to quit smoking. Yeah. And, you know, he, that's, and he, I guess he's a, a nice guy about it, you know, because he tells her to feel better about herself and everything like that. But basically... You know, we get a little bit more set up before we're still just thrown into what was the old plot of the original film before the mother is killed. And this time that's different. She isn't killed by some agents of the shop. She's just killed by Rainbird. Yeah. Uh, who this time is played by a Native, Amer- Native American actor. Thankfully. Yeah. So he is Native American this time, definitely. And they have a confrontation and he does finish her off. So that's different than what we got the first time, even though Andy's going to find them both in a closet. So he doesn't have any confrontation with the shop agents like he did in the original movie where he made that guy go blind. Right. Which I kind of dug that. It's a neat idea. So he doesn't, <laughs> basically anything cool so he could do it tries to avoid. So we, we don't really get that. We get a better looking version of Charlie's effect to kind of blow Rainbird kind of away from them as they start the run. Because Andy... He really suppresses his powers. He does very much so. It's he does very, not like to use his powers yeah. except to make money. Which is weird. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just hated this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, well, if you're going to talk about some things that, that really displease me, I think one is to bring in an actor like Kurtwood Smith and use him for one scene. We're talking about guns, guns, guns. Bitches leave. You know, this is a fantastic character actor. He just gets the one sequence here, and it's it's the scaremonger scene that was also in the first movie, where, like, one day Charlie could get so powerful she can start a nuclear explosion with her mind. And he basically does the same thing in this one, too. And once he's done there, that's it. You know, in the original film, that character eventually got karate chopped in the nose by George C. Scott in the worst mannequin effect I've ever seen. <laughs> this movie, just nothing happens. So I've never seen anybody be killed via karate chop to the nose. Not to the nose before, yeah. And the way they shot it, which made it look all the more phony. Yeah. Like they could have done a diff- oh, different things to make it not look as phony, but they picked the most phony. Yeah. Oh, God, and now I'm looking at that movie so fondly as they sat through this <laughs> war fest. And listen, I kind of bashed David Keith earlier, and he set a low bar. And I want you to know, Zach Efron came in and limboed right under that bitch because he's terrible in this. He is awful. Yeah, like playing a father is out of his wheelhouse. Why he's playing a father character? He's young looking. I mean, he's of age. Yeah, but he's still young. Yeah, he he does. He does look really young. Like he could still play somebody who's, you know, trying like a romantic comedy. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to surprise you. Zach Efron's actually 76 years old. (laughs) He's just had a lot of work done over the years, drinks the blood of virgins. No, he, he. I guess he's handsome. I don't know. I, I'm He's not my type. I, I, I would say he's a handsome fella. I would say the ladies like them some Zac Efron. Yeah, I don't like him. Yeah, I think he was trying to kind of dad it up he's a little bit small. in this one, and it didn't It didn't really work. I, I think I like Zac Efron in Neighbors, the Seth Rogen comedy, mm. and I think that's really about it. I, you know, I fell asleep during Baywatch twice. 
Yeah, Baywatch was awful. Um, yeah, that, so I think I watched Bad Grandpa once, and I mean, other other than that, I've, I've never been truly impressed with him. He didn't do anything for me to change that opinion here. Sadly, I, I mean, I, I wish he could have because I think there's a lot of potential in this part, and he doesn't really help. And granted, this is not a well written film. I mean, not not at all. This movie maybe has the worst dialogue out of both out of both pictures. One of the things I wrote down in my notes was movie isn't even good natured. No one is having a good time. Not even me. <laughs> Can we talk about animal cruelty? Right? Yeah. So listen, like I got no problem with fucking saw tearing people in half, making them cut their faces open, you know, or even stuff like, you know, solo and that kind of shit. But like, I was generally uncomfortable by a cat scratching Charlie and her burning the cat. And them having a really long conversation as the cat's like, suffering, meowing. Yeah, you hear it. Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, some Foley artists, Foley artists took the time to record some like death noises and some whatever meowing to make that work. So, I mean, they put a time and effort into this scene, which doesn't matter much, honestly, right? It doesn't really play into anything. Like there isn't a scene later where Charlie has to put somebody out of their misery, right? No. Yeah, it doesn't come up at all. But yet we still get this really weird sequence where they slowly burn a cat to death. And it's gross. I don't know why the fuck they did it. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, I mean. Like, I, I wrote that down in my notes, that scene. Yeah, I mean, because it, I was it, like, it fucked me up. Too. Yeah, yeah, because I'm sitting here trying to have a good time watch a horror movie. And I'm like, so you're not even giving me the good time stuff. You want me to take this movie so serious and be edgy. Go fuck off. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. It really turned me off the movie even more than I was already at that point. <sighs> yeah. They have this sequence, which is not in the original. I don't think there's a, a parallel to the book. I don't know. You'd have to ask Stephen King. He's not returning my calls. <laughs> at this point, Andy is captured and he sets a trap for Rainbird where he can't see Charlie and she kind of runs off in the woods all by herself. And the plot is sort of similar he kind of lays like psychic breadcrumbs for her to like follow him to the shop mm -hmm. when really he should have been like, go away. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm dead. You go live your life. But that, that doesn't happen here. That's one difference. Also, they do f full Irv in this version as well. Irv is the nicest guy in the world in the last one. In this one, he's a little bit more realistically played, even if that relationship doesn't really mean anything. I just wanted to mention that because they pulled the $100 scam on him, give him a $1 yeah. bill, and they say it's a $100 bill. They pull that on him, so he'll give them the, the ride. It makes a little bit more sense, I, I guess. You know, they, they, everything has a little bit, something a little bit extra to make it, I guess, worthy of being remade. Herb's wife now is in a coma and can't talk, and Charlie says one thing for her that she can read her mind for, and that's it. That, that's not a real positive change. Eventually, they all end up at the shop. so. This movie is shorter, so it does cut some things out. And I will say, in the original film, it builds a nice momentum, and it is immediately punched in the face by the shop. The second they're captured, the movie just slows down big time. It just becomes about George C. Scott scenery chewing and flirting with a eight-year-old Drew Barrymore. This movie is smart to cut that, but it's not like they filled it with anything else. They just sort of cut that part out of the movie. And she just sort of makes her way over to the shop in a really clumsy sequence which leads into a, a clumsy finale. Yeah. And this time is different. The father still wants her to burn everything, but that includes him this time. And what do you think of that? I thought it was weird that she burned her dad. I mean, I guess I sort of understand it, but I, I agree with you. I, I didn't think, I didn't think it was the, like the best decision narratively, but I mean, I guess I can see why they made it. I didn't like this change. It didn't make it feel edgier. I know the movie wants to be edgier, but it, it didn't really work in that respect. It's not a gritty reboot. No, it, it's not. It's just a cash grab reboot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because then after that, we don't get a cool sequence of her laying waste to hundreds of agents. We get a few fires here and there that she starts with her mind, but we just don't get a big set piece. We get the worst line of all the movies. Remember that one woman who says, I'm not going to hurt you, and she reads her mind? She gets up close and goes, liar, liar. Pants on fire and then lights her up. And I was like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Like her and parents should have done a better job at like teaching her to be better. <laughs> yeah. 
Ryan Kira Armstrong, I think, does a nice job here. But, you know, think, writing like that doesn't help. Like a young Dakota Fanny would have struggled with a bad line like that. I mean, the movie just is just kind of there. You know, while the other film, you know, we found some good cheesy fun in it. This movie can't even do that right. I mean, that, and I think that's what's really unfortunate. You don't even have a movie that you can spend an afternoon sort of, you know, watching and poking fun at. This isn't that kind of movie. It's just crummy, dull, and ultimately just kind of gross at times. But not, <laughs> we can't make fun of George C. Scott's fake pedo. Yeah. You know, you can make fun of that. You know, George C. Scott isn't really a pedophile. You know, it's just a part he's playing in a very strange way. But, you know, this stuff with the cat and the, the general dullness and the, the lack of any real fire action, you know, everything's really CG. So you don't really get a ton of great fire effects in it. You know, it's just such a miss. Do you think the the girl in this, the girl who plays Charlie, is better at acting the part? Than Drew Barrymore. Well, she's older, so that helps. I think she's eleven. Drew Barrymore was eight, eight. when she played the role. Yeah. Drew Barrymore isn't very good. I mean, she's not great, but I, I'm not really going to get caught in trying to criticize the performance of children. But she isn't fantastic in the movie. It just has to be said. And I, I like I said, I don't think Ryan is really bad in the in the reboot either. I think Zac Efron's probably the the bigger deal in that one. But you know, like I so said, the, the writing isn't really good enough to give her anything to do that would show me that she is a good actress, basically. It has a similar problem is that Charlie just isn't much of a character. So, you know, with that, you can only get little cute asides, which are better than the other one. Like when they give her fire or they give her wood chips, she's like, they could have given me something harder. You know, and in this movie, we get the liar, liar, pants on fire line, which is supposed to be badass, but it's super cheesy. Yeah. yeah the movie has no idea how cheesy it is. No idea. And that's what makes it so fucking awful and cringy. It's uncool. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's it's like the most uncool fucking movie I think I can possibly think of. Yeah. The least worthy reboot of anyone's time. Just, I mean, I mean, I wasn't going to really recommend the original movie, but at least you can have a bad movie night to that. This one should just be thrown in the garbage. Is there anything about this movie that you liked? Casting a real Native American. That's about it. The score for me. Oh, how could I forget yeah. about John Carpenter and Cody Carpenter's score? I actually, yeah. I listened to this earlier uh, just by itself. I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. I've loved his music for a, a long time. And, I, you know, he's put out a couple records. And I've always wanted to see him live. I haven't gotten a chance to. But this was a real surprise because I was watching this movie and I was like, this movie kind of sucks. But, man, the score pretty good yeah like I, you know i was bobbing my head a little bit then i looked in the movie and they were showing the credits I was like oh no wonder i like the score it's carpenter and his son i didn't realize it either yeah. until we got to the end <laughs> yeah that was probably the funnest moment i had with the whole movie was realizing that john carpenter did the score but yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> other than that you know that was the only thing that i liked about this movie yeah yeah that that's about it really you know they, they didn't even give me better better fire effects more efficient with the, how the fire looked. There were, you know, less, you know, obviously lines and stuff like that. But, and the budget really limited what they could do with fire effects. But one last thing before we wrap up here. One of the other things I didn't like was she doesn't kill the Native American for some reason. Well, because she... doesn't she, cure Redbird. She, in this one, Redbird is, is... Rainbird is different, pardon me. Rainbird, he's a, another lab rat like them. He even says at one point he's, he's just a lab rat, you know, before they even brought in white people to test. But he killed her mother. Yeah, I know, but he's just a tool of the shop, just like they wanted her to be. At least that's how I think she sees him. Hmm. Is that he is just that, a tool of that entity. And maybe he could be saved, maybe he can't, but you know, she chooses to go with him. I I don't really like it, to be honest, either. It doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. But, you know, her going to go live with Irv in the original didn't make a lot of sense either. <laughs> but, you know, Irv just happened to be the nicest guy in the world. So he didn't have a parallel in this one. So they had to put her somewhere. And I think that was the best idea they mm-hmm. had. This was the final film of executive producer Martha De, De Laurentiis. Her first film was Firestarter 84. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. Cosmic. Right? Yeah. The beer that Irv offers is labeled a a northeastern phrase akin to yup. This is heavily present in Stephen King's writings. Okay. I didn't know that. Good to know. Yeah. I'll take a look for that next time I read some King. And those are the only two facts that I could find about this movie <laughs> that were interesting. Yeah. The fact this was unsuccessful for 
Universal. This is the one of those available on Peacock and in theaters releases, so it didn't do well. I don't know if we have the box office numbers, but who cares? It didn't do well. Yeah, I didn't write those down this it's not, time. It's not important. Both movies flopped. <laughs> That's the, the, Both movies flopped, and one movie at least made decent use of the budget, the other one not so much. And much like how this movie ends, we're going to just stop it here because there's nothing more we can say about this piece not particularly yeah i mean we've said all we said you know don't recommend it don't watch it even if you're a zach efron simp i i can't really recommend you check this out so here are the reviews firestarter 84 36 on rotten tomatoes six out of ten on imdb 50 percent on metacritic and I went with the opposite because I always think that it's interesting when you have a bad movie, you want to rate it well. Mm-hmm. So let's see how this 10-star review sounds. Ooh, 10. It's a little bit long, so bear okay. with me. Film versions of Stephen King novels can be a tricky thing. Often they're half-assed, clunky miniseries. You ever try to sit down and watch The Langoliers? And when they're given the lofty cinema treatment, he has famously turned his nose in the face of Kubrick's might. I feel like Firestarter escaped unscathed and still holds to this day. A bit achingly retro now. It's a thriller perceived in a childlike manner by its young protagonist, Charlie McGee, Drew Barrymore. Charlie can start fires with her mind and certain shadowy agencies just can't wait to get their hands on her. Her father, David Keith, once participated in some scary drug testing related to telekinesis back in the day, and some of whatever altered his DNA has passed to her. He will do anything to protect her as the two frantically race across the country to safety, pursued by forces working for for Hollister, Martin Sheen, a spook with too much power and nasty ideas about what to do with it. Also on their trail is a pseudo-spiritual wacko, John Rainbird, who wants to absorb Charlie's abilities Man, what a freak. Rainbird is a Native American in King's novel, so white-haired Yankee boy Scott is an odd choice, but he does a fine job all the same. Two things are the, what makes the one, this one really stand out in a special way. Tangerine Dream provides yet another ultrasonic elect- elemental synth score that has since become legendary. It accents the story in an almost fairy tale like way, gliding the danger with a fable-style sound, but never stamping out the real menace. Barrymore is the other leg of the table, giving one hell of a fierce and vulnerable performance for such a young girl. Her childlike honesty, a prism for the audience to see the evil through her innocent eyes. It's great stuff and one of the most solid King adaptations out there. Now there's a sequel called Firestarter 2, rekindled, which pales in comparison and runs around 45 minutes too long. But it's worth look, look for the casting of Marguerite Moreau, as a grown-up Charlie, Malcolm name, right? McDowell taking over for Scott as Rainbird and Dennis Hopper as well. So that is the review. Firestarter 84. I think I really love that movie. It's kind of crazy to think that there's yeah. some people that any mediocre movie, there's some guy out there that might absolutely love it. I remember I had one girl that I met in college. and Or no, it's just after college. And when I went to her bedroom... She had a poster there for First Night, or, or uh, I think a Dark Night, or Black Night, with uh, Martin Lawrence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that movie. <laughs> and I was like, did, did, you, did you win that? She's like, no, I love that movie. Like, you you do? Like, someone loves that movie? But no, that she just had that poster up. I, I'll never forget to this day. I was like, wow, I can't believe that that's someone's favorite movie. But you never really know how it's going to work out if, like, some piece of crap just is, like, someone's Citizen Kane. <laughs> Ah, yes. As with any film released in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or the early O's, Roger Ebert reviewed it. And this is an 80s movie. Not only did Roger Ebert review it, but Gene Siskel reviewed it as well. I don't know if you guys are thinking this, but they were not big fans of this movie. Firestarter is the latest movie from the Stephen King film factory. In goes the hit book. More often than not, out comes the bad movie. And in the case of Firestarter, a very bad movie. The story of a little girl who has pyrokinetic powers, which means that she can start fires just by looking at something or someone. She's sort of a Carrie-like character, flambe. 
Firestarter stars Drew Barrymore as the Firestarter, and in this scene, it's typical of the movie with the sweet-faced little girl from E.T. being forced here to turn on her flame power when she is threatened by government agents who want to use her as a secret this weapon. This movie may be making, it's a terrible film. I think this movie may be making an unintentional political point there. You notice that the chickens got out of the way before the CIA did. Okay. Frankly, all we wait for in this movie are the fireball scenes like that, and they turn out to be nothing special. You see the line of fire, the explosion, and then if you look closely, you can see that the human target of the little girl's firepower is wearing a special fire suit complete with head covering. It's not well camouflaged stunt work, so even the sadists in the audience, hoping to see somebody fried, they won't even enjoy Firestarter. Gene's talking about himself there. It's like the dead zone, where you had Christopher Walken, you really sympathize with his character and with the problems of having this strange uh, psychic power. Very good point. In this movie, it's simply a gimmick. Yeah. The girl narrows her eyes, somebody goes up in flames, the government scientists run around like crazy, and then sure. we repeat it all again. With the additional very unsavory element of the George C. Scott character, yeah. who is apparently a child molester, <laughs> See, Ebert sees it too. So you don't know quite what he's talking about. Yeah. And he likes to break had, noses, I know. Yeah, he, and he wants to break that little girl's nose, and I could have done without that speech. And indeed, the whole movie just seemed to me like lots of sensational scenes in search of something to be about. And uh, Another example of what you're talking about, of not giving the girl the character, uh, go back to Carrie, which is, this film is basically a quickie ripoff of. Uh, the character of Carrie, played by Sissy Spacek, mm -hmm. was worthy of getting an Academy Award nomination, and it, she was a fully realized character, and her wrath made sense. They weren't fans. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, I'm going to break your nose, and then make sweet love to you. <laughs> <laughs> Too far. <laughs> All right. Firestarter 2022, 22.4 user review, 10% on Rotten Tomatoes, 4.6 out of 10 on IMDb. And here is another 10 star review of this piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Not sure why all the hate, probably a bunch of found footage types, which in our opinion isn't filmmaking. It's home movies at best, or it might be the mightier than thou can't reboot, reboot anything that they deem their top films. Firestarter needed a reboot as the story is timeless, but the special effects and filming of the older version are quite dated. The movie was entertaining right from the start. Some moron said no character development, then whined about being a remake. Well, it does need character development. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> we know we know them. So let's get to the meat of the story in action, which this movie did. Excellent special effects. And I thought Zach did a very good job as a dad. The whole cast was excellent. The girl was as, as annoying as Drew Barrymore to us to each his own. That was a big one on sentence. <laughs> we preferred this to the original. We thought this was much better than the original. We also liked the ending face-off better as well. We hope all the negative whining buttheads don't wreck it, all, wreck, it, wreck it for us to true King fans that want a sequel of this film was set up perfect for one. Bravo to the cast and crew. Solid Eight bump to ten just because. This man's a fool. Yeah. <laughs> You're a fool. I had a karate chop your nose. I had a karate chop your nose and babysit your kids. Ugh. No, you you don't you don't want you no. don't want rainbird rainbird babysitting services. I'll no, cry in you. the dark with your kids. <coughs> no, thank you. If you don't want that kind of service, you want better service. You can find better service at grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. I can't keep doing that. And no matter what, every character just becomes Vince McMahon. It's just how my impressions go. <laughs> Sean Connery eventually just becomes Vince McMahon. It's just how it goes. Yeah, you can find us at uh, grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. Email us there. Or uh, you can uh, also get in touch with us at grittyreboot at gmail. I'm sorry, at TikTok and at Instagram. All of our uh, links are on Instagram. And I wanted to mention that because uh, this weekend uh, is the Oscars. And we're going to be doing our first uh, live stream. We are going to be critiquing and trying to basically get through the boredom of the Oscars and try not to riot when the picks we want do not win Academy Awards. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to suck. Yeah, very much Prepare so. to be disappointed. Hey, just like every Academy Awards season. I remember sitting there watching, like, sitting. I watched Crash win. I was at a party and we watched Crash win. And, like, just sucked the air out of the room. <laughs> oh, I think it was one of the last like Oscar parties that like everybody was like really excited and then whoo, nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's it, tough. Yeah, I'm hoping for that. So you can find me at Illusions13 at Twitter. 
you know, you can get in touch with me there. You can take a look at some political memes and, and let me know what you think about the show or just anything else. Meredith, what are your socials? I'm on Facebook. Meredith is on Facebook. <laughs> you can look for you type in Meredith Gritty Reboot and you'll find her. I hope so. Yeah, that's how it should work. I hope. I, I don't think that's how it works. It isn't. Well, it is what it is. Listen, guys, this was a uh, fire starter. We talked a lot about the 84 version, not so much about 2022s, but um, that's how you should take it as well. If you want to check out any of these movies and I don't recommend that you do, I recommend you watch any other King adaptation besides these go watch Carrie instead. But if you're going to watch any of them, make a bad movie Friday night out of the original. Yeah. Yeah. Get real drunk. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Get real drunk. Like take two shots every time somebody uses fire. Yeah. Take, please don't take shots anytime George C. Scott is creepy. You will die of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> I'm going to kill you by alcohol poisoning. And I'll chop your nose. Shake a drink every time George C. Scott is a pedophile. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> this went a weird way. With that, everyone, I bid you adieu. Bye, guys. <laughs>